Welcome to the Speakeasy Crime Cafe podcast, where we speak to some of the most amazing people that you'll ever meet. The people that I bring to you have lived through or experienced something most of us never will. I'm your host, Michael Merson. Again, welcome, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today at the Speakeasy Crime Cafe, I got a special guest, Lou Velosi, a retired ATF agent that spent 26 years on the job with the ATF where he's worked undercover. Storefronts, it's, it's got to be, I mean, people just don't know they're walking in and they're talking to an ATF agent or yeah. someone else. And they're, hey, let me sell you this gun. And after you develop a reputation and you go months and these guys think they're in the clear for months. Mm-hmm. Then more people start bringing you more and more. Yeah, it's spider webs. You know, some some wild shit happened in these storefronts. You know, especially on the first one with the gangs. Um, you know, we had blank walls. They were just white drywall painted white. And uh, we had a bowl of Sharpies. And we told these guys, man, you can go ahead, feel free and tag. You know, but no hating, right? Um, and that lasted for like a day. And next thing you know, they're they're tagging and they're they're doing these you know thinly veiled death threats against rival gang members and shit. And we actually used all the drywall as evidence at the end. And uh, so there were times when rival gangs would come in, and we told them, "Listen, man, this is a safe zone. Everyone's welcome here. You know, this is safe zone. This is sanctuary." It didn't last. You know, we had fist fights and all sorts of shit. We'd have to go out and bust up fist fights and ban people from coming in. And cops would show up and, uh, you know, they wanted to, to get rid of us because these cops didn't know who we were. Yeah, they didn't know. Right. Uh, you know, I had to deal with uh, eviction notices from the landlords when they got wind of what was going on. Fire marshal coming in, trying to shut us down. Uh, code enforcement, local police. All that. Uh, we were burglarized multiple times. Uh, we were attempted robberies. And, you know, these guys knew we were holding a lot of cash in there. You know, we let everyone know that we, we had guns on us. But, you know, we found out that the guys we were dealing with, even guys we might have done five or six deals with, and everything had gone well. They had sold us drugs or guns five or six times. Those same guys would come back at night and try and rob us. You know, there's no honor among thieves, man. So, so the guy who's doing the tattoos for you, he's your informant. Yep. And he's getting paid to do tattoos. Yep. Yep. That's how he made his living. That's right. Yeah. He was allowed to keep the money he made. And you guys were just doing everything else. Yeah. And nobody was in the white. When did it all come down? So we ran that for over a year. Uh, You know, these operations have a shelf life. So this is your job. You're an ATF agent, yep. and you're going to work in a tattoo shop just buying guns. And- Every day. You know, I probably went over a decade without ever carrying a badge. You know, it, it was it was crazy. Um yeah, so I would go there every day, and, uh, you know, we had crazy hours. We, we wouldn't open up until after, you know, until noon. Were you married at this time? I was. Yep. How often were you home? Not often. Not often. Um, you know, we, so on that one, 
like I was saying, they have a shelf life, and you, you can kind of feel when it's time to shut it down, right? You know you, you've done everything you can. You've kind of wrung out uh, as much as you can from, from the criminal element in that area, and it's time to shut it down before something bad happens. Um, you know, you don't want to push it with these things. So usually it, that shelf life was between, you know, nine months and maybe 14 months. Um, so when this one, you know, we all kind of had that feeling. We're like, man, we got 430 guns, right? We have as much dope as we can afford to buy. Um, we have over 100 defendants, right? Let's, let's wrap it up. So that one ended with just a massive takedown where we called in uh, SWAT teams from other cities, um, you know, the U.S. Marshals who were so helpful in these operations because we would bring them in early before a takedown. They would, they would make packets on every defendant, you know, and they would even some of the real bad ones, they would put them to bed uh, so we knew exactly where they were and all that. And then, you know, you would have hundreds, literally hundreds of law enforcement officers for this massive roundup where doors are just getting kicked in you know, arrest warrants executed, uh, you know, and now remember some of these guys, maybe we hadn't dealt with them for 10 months. I was about to say, they, right. they sleeping no in their idea. bed not Absolutely. knowing anything is going on. Yep. And the door gets kicked in and here comes, you know, federal agents to make the arrest off yep. a gun he sold almost a year ago. Yep. We, and we would get the vast majority of them. You know, there would be a bunch of them who were locked up on other charges by this time, okay. you know, and they would just that get detainers sense. place. And then the ones who they didn't get in the roundup, were uh, designated as fugitives by the U.S. Marshal Service, who was excellent, and they would they would get them, they would find them. So we had two ways of doing it. One was the massive roundup, you know, the uh, door kicking in and all that. Uh, the other one was, and my favorite was, we would actually call everyone back in uh, with some ruse and they would get banged, and we would try and space them out as best we could with SWAT teams inside, and they would get banged. In the, as they in the tattoo shop? No, not we didn't do it there. When we got to the the bigger ones where we had warehouses, yeah, that's how we did it. Um, you know, we would reach back out to these guys and say, listen, because by this time we were dealing with electronics and all sorts. Say, hey, man, we got a, a container full of 60-inch flat screens, Samsungs coming in, and uh, we got to unass them real quick. So you come here, you know, we get you five or six, you know, we're selling them for some ridiculous price, fucking 50 bucks each or whatever. So I would say, listen, man, come here at 1030, you know, on Friday, come here at 1030 in the morning, I'll reserve at least 10 for you. Oh, man, I'll be there. Right. And so these guys would show up and, you know, we would have SWAT guys, you know, just in the warehouse, sometimes in the back of a, the container where the TVs, we would actually bring a container right up to the loading dock. And when we'd open the door, they'd be there with beanbag rounds and, and all that. And, uh, you know, those were my favorite um, because I never really liked to be around in the takedowns, but those were so much fun uh, because. OK, so you guys are listening to this. He's got a smile on his face. He's remembering this as he's telling us this story. Yeah. And you could see the joy that he had in taking these bad guys down. Yeah, you know, you, you, there would be guys who you really didn't like, who you dealt with. A lot of these guys were assholes dealing with them. And, uh, you know, when they'd come back in and their greed was just coming out of their pores because they're going to get 10 flat screens for, you know, whatever, for a couple hundred bucks. Uh, but what they met was a bunch of guys in green suits 
who were beanbagging them and dogs biting them and all that, uh, there was a little satisfaction. And there had to be satisfaction, too, because I can only imagine if they brought a gun in to sell to you, it, it wasn't cheap. And they knew you guys were buying them, and they probably said, no, no, I need I need another 200 for this. Yeah, the, you know, the negotiations would always be tense, uh, to say the least, right? And uh, it was a, it's tricky. That's why you need experience undercovers, because with ATF, our rule was that we never let a gun walk, okay? Here's the way I looked at it. If some convicted felon, some gangbanger comes in with a gun, um, and his intentions are to sell it to me, but if I can't make that deal happen, if we can't come to a price and he walks out with that gun and someone gets shot later that afternoon with that gun, that's on me. I had a chance to get it. So we never let a gun walk. Um, now, it's easy to say that, but you know, some guy would come in with some piece of shit, high point, nine millimeter, and he'd want $1,000 for it, right? You know, you can buy that gun for like 120 bucks. It's so cheap. You know, you can practically melt it with a big lighter. The metal is so shit, yeah. right? So I can't, like, keep my street credibility and give him $1,000 for that $100, $100 gun. It's almost, you know, a, a defense lawyer could argue that it's damn near entrapment to give someone that much money for something that's worth so little. So that's where the art of negotiation came in. And uh, you just couldn't let it walk. So, and these guys are assholes. They would have a price in their mind. But again, you know, I would, sometimes this would go on for hours, but I never let a gun walk. You know, none of us did ever from that operation. But that's a good, that's not only just doing a good job, Lou. I mean, that is protecting the community. When people talk about protecting the community, you're absolutely right. You let that gun go, you don't know what's going to happen to it. Yep. Those are the ones that we, we hear about that were in use in the drive-by shooting, killed a little baby that was sleeping in a house, uh, you know, during the drive-by. Yep. Or a mom walking down the street or someone just innocent that had no plans of being in this shooting or any of this gang activity that was shot. And no, I give you credit, man, for taking the gun off the street. You did what you had to do. You got the gun off the street. You moved it forward. And that's that's fantastic. All right, Lou, so how many years again? 26. 26. Did you, have you missed it? You've been retired for how long now? Um, almost five years now. Five years, do you miss it? I always say that, I, that old saying, I, I miss the clowns, but I don't miss the circus. You I miss, miss my clowns. brothers and sisters that I worked with. Um, I miss that camaraderie, uh, the crew we had. Um, it was like, this amazing undercover cast that we had of guys, men and women all over the country. Uh, the only thing I can compare it to is the Avengers. And I'm not being silly. I mean, just people with just incredible abilities and skills uh, that, you know, you put together in a room, like for one of our, when we would have an undercover conference, you get this group that look like uh, you know, a room full of, of gang members, uh, yet it was, these are the most brilliant, um, s the smartest, most charismatic people you'll ever meet in your life, humble, with big hearts, and they're out there doing the Lord's work, you know, and I, I miss that. I miss that interaction. Yeah. 
I know what you mean. I, you know, I was a cop for 10 years, yeah. and the guys that I worked with, you know, you stay in touch, but it's not the same. It's not the same. You're not doing the job anymore. Yep. You hear about the excitement on TV and what they're doing, and you're like, I used to do that. Right. And you, you may know some of the guys that are involved, and you're watching it, and it's just you're just you're just not in the know anymore. Yeah. But you, know you that, did a lot of good, right? Yeah, but the silence is deafening, man. That phone stops ringing. Uh, you know, I had all my phones going all the time, my undercover phone, my my, my government phone and, and personal phone, all that. And then uh, then it just quiets, right? You leave and it gets quiet, you know. When did it hit you that you were done? Well, my career ended uh, didn't end the way anyone would ever want their career to end. I uh, I had uh, made poor personal decisions. I was believing my own bullshit. I was I was living the life of Sal Nunziato, my undercover uh, persona, uh, more than I was Lou Velozzi. Uh, you know, kind of like I said in the class, I was I was receiving all sorts of awards at this point in my life. OSIDF Award, Case of the Year. Project Safe Neighborhood Gun Gun Case of the Year, Gang Case of the Year, U.S. Attorney's Office Agent of the Year. Uh, but there were some awards that I, I certainly wasn't receiving. Father of the Year, uh, Husband of the Year, Friend of the Year. And uh, it, it took a crash uh, for, a total crash, professionally and personally, uh, for me. And I was under investigation by the OIG. Um, I had had an the OIG is who the Office of Inspector General, which is internal affairs for the Department of Justice. Okay. Um, and that's when that's when they're really looking at you, right? If ATF internal affairs uh, gets taken, if that investigation gets taken over by the OIG, you know that, that's when you might really be in big trouble. Um, and so. Uh, I had had an affair with the federal prosecutor who was prosecuting the cases, you know, which is not a smart thing to do, obviously. And when all this came out, uh, that came out too. That came out. Uh, and so now the people who I had always, people who I had been working for, you know, the federal prosecutors, United States Attorney's Office, uh, who I had been risking my life for. Because that's really who you work for. You work for the U.S. Attorney's Office, right? Even though you work for ATF, but you know those are the ones who take the cases. Those are the ones who you have to make happy. Um, how quickly they turned their back on me was was amazing. Um, and you know these are armchair warriors who sit up in their offices and never put themselves in danger, but are so quick to judge and are so worried about you know their reputation and them not looking bad. Um, I was amazed how quickly they turned their backs on me. And uh, actually, so all 26 years of doing great work and no credit in the bank, zero credit in the bank for my all those years of work. And uh, you know, they came after me, um, mostly because of her, because they they wanted to get rid of her. They were willing to throw me under the bus. Uh, you know, they came after us with false accusations, and I say that because they were proven to be false. Uh, I was investigated for two and a half years by the OIG at the end of my career. And trust me, you know, 
very nerve-wracking because undercover work is a gray area, and they went way out of the scope. They went back. I was getting calls from guys, like tech guys, who had set up cameras for me uh, eight years ago, and, he, and they would tell me, hey, man, I just got interviewed by the OIG. You know, they're asking me about exact, if I knew, remembered exactly where I placed one of these hidden cameras. And uh, I was like, man, what are they doing? And then I realized they were going after every time I had testified, they pulled all the transcripts, and they were trying to find an inconsistency in my testimony. And, uh, I mean, just way out of the scope. They went, and I, now I, the paranoia set in, right? Again, undercover work's a gray area. Sometimes you do what you got to do so that you go home at night, right? Alive. So I crashed, man. I, I had a total breakdown, a, a mental breakdown. Um, you know, were it not for my psychiatrist, you know, I might not be talking to you today. And, um, you know, that's an important thing that you say about too, right? Because... Uh Law enforcement work, people, they sit there and they go, well, you know, they're having problems and they don't want to go talk to anybody. They're yeah. afraid of a stigma that goes along with it. But you're proof. You know, you talk to someone, it helps. And if you're law enforcement right now, and I, I think Lou will back me up on this, if you're having problems at work or at home, get some counseling. Get some help. It's there. Listen, I'm not proud of this. I ended up in my bedroom alone with my Glock 40 in my mouth, okay? Trying to find a reason not to pull that trigger. Um, what stopped you that day? My wife actually went to uh, our first, the, my first session with the psychiatrist, and, and it was brutal. I had just told her, and uh, I told her before it came out, luckily, and uh, you know, the psychiatrist and my wife, I think they knew by my mental state, you know, where I was. And my wife looked at me in that, during that meeting and she said, listen, if you do something stupid, if you take your own life, she goes, I will make sure that your son knows what a piece of shit you were. And it was, it was that statement that stopped me from pulling that trigger. Because I didn't want, the most important thing to me was what my kids thought of me. And, you know, and, and then I had a buddy, a guy, he owns South Magazine, his name's Michael Brooks. And they did a feature on me. That was kind of my first venture out into the media world. Uh, he put me on the cover and did a feature about my story. And I told him, you know, I, we, were, we became friends. I confided in him that my worst nightmare was my son Googling our name and seeing all the bad shit about me. Um, because everything was false, except for the, the you know, the affair allegation. Everything, it was fake. They trumped up two things, uh, perjury and uh, filling out a form incorrectly. And he told me, he said, listen, you know, the only way around that, he goes, you got to work and bury, bury that with good stuff. And I've done that. You know, if you Google me now, it's my book, my appearances, podcasts, and all sorts of good stuff. Um, you know, because unfortunately, the newspapers never put out the article where I was cleared of everything, because that doesn't sell newspapers. They only put out the sexy shit about an affair between a federal prosecutor and a federal agent. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I've had to crawl out of that hole, and I, I was at the very, I was at the bottom. I had climbed to the top of my profession, 
I was living the dream, man. I worked, I didn't work for a field office. I worked directly for the undercover program. You know, my boss was, you know, at this undisclosed location in Virginia where the undercover branch is out of. And I could live anywhere I wanted to. I could bounce all over the country working undercover. It was the greatest gig in the world. Running and gunning. And I fucked it up. You know, because I, I started believing my own shit. I never took a break. I was so obsessed with the undercover. I wanted every case to be better than the previous one. That I never took a break and I lost priorities. Faith, family, and friends. I lost my priorities, you know. And sometimes it takes a total crash, you know, for you to, to look in the mirror, you know, and see who's to blame for your problems and, and start crawling out of the hole. It's amazing. Is that you're still married? Yep. You and her have worked it out, I guess. Yeah. Some, or yeah we've worked it out, man. It, it's probably better. Our marriage is better than it ever was. Yeah. No doubt. Yep. Sounds like an amazing woman. Yeah. Without a doubt. Super strong woman. Yeah. She's my queen from Queens. Your queen from Queens. Absolutely, man. Yep. I couldn't imagine, man. 26 years, I mean, just running that type of life. I mean, no stop. When we talk about this undercover work for that for that long, it's just it's incredible. Yeah. You said you you've got two you got phones going. You got to mm -hmm. know when you're answering the phone. You got to keep up with the ID that you got going. Mm -hmm. uh, you're out in public. People don't know that you're an ATF agent, and it's just constant, twenty four seven. It was twenty four seven, without a doubt. And even when you're home, you're not really home. Because that, you know, that phone's ringing all the time and your mind's somewhere else. Hard to get out of character, you know, and I lived in that character. And, uh, you know, no one tells it better than Jay Dobbins. They're in his Hells Angels case. You know, he came home and, uh, you know, he was still Jaybird, you know, when he came home with the Hells Angels. And, uh, you know, his wife said, listen, I didn't marry some fucking gangster. You know, I married a, a police officer, a college-educated police officer. And he said to his wife, he goes, well, listen, I can't, just, I can't just turn it off. I can't just come home and turn it off. And she goes, well, you better find a fucking dimmer switch when you come home and tone it down. And, you know, she checked him, man. She put him in check. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not alone in this, you know. I mean, no. almost every... every guy I've worked with, uh, you know, has gone through something similar. It didn't end up in a paper like mine, but they've gone through this. And, uh, you know, I, I compare all these great undercovers that I, I was honored, privileged to work with. I compare them to comedians. When you look at like the, the most brilliant, famous comedians, um, Richard Pryor, Robin Williams, you know, all these guys, they're borderline brilliant, genius, right? you know, to, to do what they do. But there's a, there's a tragedy in their lives, right? There's always a, a dark side and a tragedy. And that, that's very similar to the people I was surrounded by, you know, when I was working undercover. It's incredible. Yeah. Do you ever slip in public of your ID or, I mean, cause, I know that when 
when I was a police officer, we were told not to confront, never speak to anybody if you knew they were undercover, you saw them in public unless they confronted you first. And I, one of the funniest times, uh, I'm with, I'm at Home Depot with my father-in-law, and we're walking along, and it, it happened to be one of the ATF guys that were working part of the task force in our area and so forth, and I'd worked with him a couple of times. And he comes walking by, and he just kind of looked at me, and I didn't say anything, right? And he smiled, he stopped, and he and I started talking and so forth. And, uh, I mean, he, he, he had the part. He had the long, you know, the ZZ Top beard. It came all the way down and tattooed it up and so forth. And uh, my follow just kept walking because he didn't know, right? And uh, I get done talking, and I go up to my father-in-law. We're standing there, and he's, uh, he goes, uh, that's one of those undercover guys, isn't it? And I said, yeah, he's undercover. And uh, he's like, I knew it. I knew it. I'm like, you didn't know. You it. didn't know. Yeah, you didn't yeah. know. It. You didn't know it. But That's it's great. it's kind of comical. But uh, no, unless uh, I mean, like you said, you can do the beard, you can do the tats, you can look the part. But if you can't talk it, yep, you're out. They'll see right through you. Yep. Never slipped. I never did. No. I slipped my, you know, my slippage was with my personal life. You know. In my professional life, I, I never did slip. No. I mean, I'm trying to get people that are listening to this to understand 26 years of playing a role well, of a bad under, guy. 18 years of undercover work. 18, 18 years, years of undercover yeah. of playing a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Night and day. Yep. And no one knew anything any different mm-hmm. except for your family cops that see you out on the street if they were at the hospital that night and you brought that one guy in they see you out on the street and they just assume hey he's one of those biker guys just come back yep yeah. was there ever a big reveal with some of these cops no you know i mean i was hassled a lot you know during these cases by cops you know and rightfully so you know what i mean uh, and then i never took it personally um you know i got shaken down you know cuffed the whole deal but really uh, Pulled out of the car, cuffed, and... Yeah, proned out. Yeah. Proned out. Yeah. Wow. So, But that, that was all part of it, you know. That does nothing but give you more street cred. It's amazing. Well, I appreciate what you did, and I'm sure... Uh, communities across the country that you worked in appreciate everything that you've done. I mean, Thank you, again, brother. 18 Thank years, man, playing a part and never coming out of the role. Now you're out, though. So yep. if you guys, uh, again, if you need someone to come speak at your conference, uh, they can get a hold of you how? Uh, you can go to louvelosi.com um, and uh, you can just... Get me directly over my website, louvelosi.com, and my book, Storefront Sting, an ATF Agent's Life Undercover, is available on Amazon, uh, $19.99. It's a good read. It's been optioned um, by Hollywood, so hopefully I'll be coming back to talk to you when the uh, when the Netflix show is on, man. That'll be a good one, man. Yeah. That'll be a good one. All right, again, guys, thank you for listening, and hope you enjoy the show. And Lou